Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the great questions of the church through the centuries is, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And people have all kinds of answers related to that. Sometimes it, it relates to uh, a prayer that someone has prayed or a sin that someone has, sins that people have confessed. It, it often connects with things that we know And all of these things are extremely important and valuable and significant to being a disciple of Jesus. But what does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, when you boil it down to its essence? And and I think that, that the answer to that question is at least in part given to us in the 63rd Psalm. Because right from the beginning, David says, Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. David is making a declaration that's saying, I want to be identified with you, God. I want to be one of your people, God. I want to be, I want to be known by you, and I want to be known with you. And when people ask me, who are you for, I want them to understand, I'm for you, God. That's significant because there are all kinds of gods that human beings worship. There are all kinds of things that we could say, that's my God, that's my God, that's my God. For some people, our God is is wisdom or intellect or reason. For others, it is pleasure. It is what we feel. For others, it is it is about relationships. For others, it's about the, the worshiping and, and saying that wealth is our God or fame is our God or significance is our God. And all of these things are are gifts from God in one way or another, and they're not bad in and of themselves. They're just not good gods. And David says, of all the choices of gods I could worship, God, I want you. And of course, in his context, the gods are the idols of the nations and and the gods that the nations around him worship. And he's saying, of all the choices, God, I want to be identified with you. I choose you. There is something in that that is beyond knowledge. There's something in that that's beyond emotion. There's something in that that is deeper about what David is saying. In his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks talks about uh, reading about about a man who bought a new house, and there was a, a stand of bamboo by his driveway, and he didn't like it there. He didn't want it there anymore. So one of the first things he did when he moved in is he, he uh, dug up that bamboo stand. He, he cut it down with an axe, and then when he got it down to the roots, he dug uh, much of the, of the root system out of there as he possibly could. And then he poured plant poison all on it, down on the, what was left of the roots, and then he covered it up with gravel, and just to make sure, he covered it over finally with cement. He did not want bamboo shoots coming up there. And it was fine until about two years later, he came out one day and noticed that there was a little green bamboo shoot 
popping up through the cement. And Brooks says there is something in us that has deep desire and passion for something. Something we are going to worship. Something that gives us significance and value and worth. And there's something in us the way God created us that we want something. And Brooks says what we worship is much more about what we desire than what we know. And David is saying, God, I want you to be my God. And what does that look like? Well, he said, goes on in verse 1 and says, I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. When he says, I, I search for you, I earnestly search for you, another translation of that is, I search early for you. As soon as I get up in the morning, I want you. I desire you. I'm seeking you. You stop and think about things that are important to you. You get up in the morning and an idea comes to you of something you ought to do. You can tell how much you really want to do it and how important it really is to you by how well, your next, the next thing you do. If you say, well, you know what? I'll get to that later. Maybe in the next few days I'll, I'll address that. Maybe in the next few weeks I'll think about that. By that very response, you're saying it's not that important. But if your first action is, you know what, i got to do that right now. It says something about how important that is. And David is saying, God, I get up in the morning, I want to seek you now. I want to seek you earnestly, I want to seek you early. And he talks about thirsting. You know, David is writing this, it tells us in the beginning, he's writing from the wilderness. This is, this is a, a dry, barren place where David writes. And, and I suspect very few of us have ever experienced the kind of thirst that can come to you in the desert and the wilderness. That kind of sand in your mouth, canteen is empty, you have no idea where the next water is kind of thirst. Sun beating down on you kind of thirst. Where you would give anything for a drink of water. And David says, God, that's the kind of thirst I have for you. And to say that, then he says, my whole body longs for you. Everything about me wants you, desires you. For David to say, oh God, you're my God. Oh God, I want to follow you. I choose you. Is to say, I yearn for you with every part of my being. Everything that I am. You are the most passionate desire of my life. And I think that's significant because far too often when we think about following God and being Christians and being disciples of Jesus, there's something in us that says, I want that, but how, how little can I give of myself and still be that? I remember hearing years ago about someone talking about saying that, that someone, a person, I heard someone saying toward God, it's almost as if we're saying, God, I, I'd like a dollar's worth of God. And when I read that, it made me think of when I was a child and I would go be in the car when my father or mother stopped at a, at a gas station. Back when I was young, there were, they didn't have self-service gas stations. Uh, you would pull up to the pump, and an attendant would come out. And you'd roll down the window, and I do mean roll down the window, not 
use the electric motor to get the window down. You roll down the window, and the attendant would say, what can I do for you? And you would say something like, fill her up with regular. I always loved it when my dad would say, fill it up with ethyl, because I thought that was a strange word. And that was actually my grandmother's name, and that just brought all kinds of funny pictures into my mind as a child. But he'd say, fill her up with regular, and they would fill up the gas tank. Now, when I started driving, I had a, a, an old... 66 Chevrolet Impala clunker that I inherited from my sister who inherited it from my uncle because he was generous to give it to her, but he didn't want it anymore. And so the car didn't, you know, you, you, it took a lot of gas. It was a big car. And I didn't have a lot of money in high school, so I, I would often, when I pull up to the gas pumps and the guy would say, what can I get for you? I would rarely say, fill her up. I would usually look at what I had in my pocket and in my wallet and think, okay, I want to spend money on that, I want to spend money on that. And I would often say, give me $2 a regular. Now, we laugh at that now because $2 a regular wouldn't even hardly give you a gallon of gas. But, you know, I, I was thinking about how little gas can I get and still have enough money to do all the other things that I wanted to do. And I worry sometimes about myself, about us, if that isn't our approach to God. How, how little of God can I get and still keep running, keep moving with him? But I really want to bank that on the other things, ways that I want to spend my life and my energies and my passions. And David is simply saying, when we say, when we claim that God is our God, you can't live that way. When God is our God, you're, you're, you're passionate. Your, your, your desire is to be all in with him. And why would David say that? What, would, what in the world would make David say that I, I want to be all in with this God? Well, he says in verses 2 and 3, it's because I've gotten a glimpse of who God is. He writes, beginning in verse 2, I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. David says, I have seen an image, a vision of who you are, God, and I'm astounded at who you are. My mind is reeling at who you are. And when David talks about seeing him in the sanctuary, he's, he's talking about the place where Israel comes to worship. He's talking about the place where heaven and earth meet in the temple and the tabernacle. The place where the, where the kingdom of God and the nature and the character of God is revealed in all of its glory. This is who God is. This is what God's kingdom is about. It's in this place where you see it clearly. And when Jesus comes and talks about how he is the glory of God and he is the presence of God and the very visible essence of God... What, he's, what they're telling us is that when you look at Jesus, you see what the kingdom and the character and the nature of God truly is. This is it. And David says, I've seen your power. I know how you've worked in our people and brought us out of Egypt and brought us into this land and rescued us again and again and again. I've seen your glory revealed and the greatness of who you are, but I also have seen your unfailing love. I've seen your unfailing love forgive us of our sins when we've rejected you. I've seen your unfailing love when you've rescued us and we, the last thing we deserved was to be rescued. I've seen your unfailing love blessing us in ways that we could never earn or merit if we worked all of our lives. God, I've seen your 
goodness. I've seen your nature. I've seen your character. And what I've seen is power to do anything. And I've seen your love to work through our failings and our sins and our struggles. And David says, I've seen a glimpse of that. He tells us in the beginning of the psalm that he's not writing this from the sanctuary. He's writing this in the wilderness. And more than likely, no one's exactly sure, but more than likely, David is writing this when he's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from King Saul who's trying to take his life. And David is not in the sanctuary, but he remembers what he experienced in the sanctuary. He remembers about being in worship with all of God's people and hearing the truth and and singing the truth and experiencing that together. You know, it's not unlike what we're dealing with now. We're dealing with a time when we can't all be here together. And it's difficult for us and it's a struggle for us. We are at least able to, to, to worship together in our different places through the, through the gift of, of technology. But we remember what we have learned in worship. That's why worship is so vital for us to connect, whether we're here or spread out as we are now. Because when we come together in worship, we sing songs that we might not otherwise think to sing. And we read scriptures that we might not otherwise read. And we pray prayers that we might, all, we might otherwise avoid. And we hear things proclaimed that we would maybe rather not hear. And we're reminded of who God is. We're reminded that God is good and merciful. And his unfailing love is better than life itself. David is saying, if, if Saul eventually catches up with me and he takes my life, your unfailing love is still better. What an astounding thing for him to say. And because he knows who God is, David says, my heart is full of praise. That's what happens when when we're, when we're passionate about God, even in the difficult times of life, even in the struggles of life, when we are passionate about God and we desire God with all of our being as much as we possibly can, we discover who God is, and when we discover who God is, we, begin, we can't help but praise Him. And he talks about praising God. He said, how I praise you, I praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I'll praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night because you're my helper. I'll sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong hand holds me securely. David says, I'm going to praise you publicly I'm going to praise you joyfully. I'm not going to do it grudgingly as if it has to be wrenched out of me. It just flows out of me because I know who you are. And at night, I am so excited about who you are. I'm so enamored with who you are. I can't get to sleep. I don't know about you, but there are times at night where I can't go to sleep. But usually, it's because of worry and anxiety and I'm trying to figure out something. And David, I'm sure, has those moments too. But he's saying here, when, when our passions are with God and we've seen who God is, we lie awake at night because we just can't think enough about him. All we want to do is think about who God is and his power and his glory and his unfailing love. 
We want everything about us, night and day, to be about God. And there is a sense of satisfaction that comes from that. A sense of feeling full in a way that you can't feel full when you eat the greatest banquet you've ever been a part of. I think it's what Jesus is saying when he says to the woman at the well, drink, you drink of that water, you're going to be thirsty again, but you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. It's when Jesus talks about being the bread of life, and he says, you eat this bread, and you're going to need more tomorrow, but if you eat the bread that I give you, you'll never be hungry again. It is being satisfied fully and completely in our spirits, in our lives, in all that we are with the one who, who creates us and desires for us significance and worth and value. This is our God. And David says, this is why, God, you are my God. But there is another part to this psalm that feels a little bit out of place. When you get to verses 9 and 10, David says, But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. And we read those kinds of things and we're like, wow, this was going along so well. And then all of a sudden, wow, we got hit with that. We have to remember that there are different genres of literature in Scripture. There, there's historical narrative. There, there, the Gospels tell selective stories. There, there, are, uh, there are laws and epistles. There's apocalyptic literature. And there's poetry. And we have to treat each of them differently. And as someone pointed out to me this week, this is not just poetry, but it's lyric poetry. And the, and the essence of lyric poetry is honesty. The poet is writing, sort of cracking open their emotions and, and displaying them on the page. That's, that's really what it's about. It's being willing to say, this is what I feel. This is what I'm wrestling with. And, and this is my emotion right now. And it doesn't mean that that the emotions are necessarily always exactly right, but they're honest. And God always wants us to be honest about our emotions with him. But I think it's also important to understand that when David talks about his enemies, he's not talking about enemies in the way we sometimes talk about them. Because sometimes for us, enemies mean people who disagree with me. People who are on the opposite side of an issue from me. People who maybe have different political views or different other views that from me, theological views or whatever that may be. There's a tendency in us, and particularly in our culture right now, to see people who disagree with us as the enemy. And so when you do that, and then to say the things that David says, says these harsh things, well, that makes us feel uncomfortable. But I don't think that's what David's talking about. He's not talking about people who disagree with him. He says, these are people who want to take my life. And to take David's life is to take the, the life of the anointed one of God. David's been anointed the king. And through David, the people will worship God and follow God. And even more, will, become, will bear witness to God of all the nations. And I think at the heart of what David is talking about is, is God. I believe that the people who are trying to thwart your good purposes need to be dealt with. And I believe you will deal with them. And so when we think about, about people, maybe this, this, these words in a more modern context, 
Perhaps it's about people who, who damage the psyche and, and the life of children. That makes it very difficult for them to experience God. It, it's about maybe people who, who take advantage of the vulnerable. It's about people who promote injustice in the world. It's about people who, whose greed and passion for power trample people and walk over people and disregard people and push them away from God. Think about the persecuted church that we pray for every Sunday. And the intent of, of people trying to, to, to end the church around the world is to end God's witness in the world and God's good purposes in the world to redeem and restore people everywhere in the world. And we pray against that. And do we really want a God who looks at those kinds of things that are happening in the world and says, well, you know what? I don't really want people to think I'm a wrathful, vengeful God, so I won't do anything about it. I mean, we want a God who takes injustice seriously. We want a God who says, I'm not going to let people get away with doing those things. There will be justice. And David talks in future tense language here. He's not saying, God, you're going to do that right this moment. But I believe that ultimately, you will bring justice. Because that's the kind of God you are. And it's not without grace. Because there is a sense in which all of us could be condemned by, by the justice of God. But there is grace involved. But it's about people and, and, the, and the work of the evil one to destroy and to thwart all of God's good purposes in this world. And God will deal with that. And we ought to care about that too. To say, God, you're my God, is to say, God, I want to be an agent of justice in this world for you. But I want to do it the way you want me to do it. I want to be led by you. It's not my decision to make. I mean, God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. But it's that passion and that desire to say, God, I want my heart to be your heart. And I trust you for the ultimate justice that you are going to bring. When you get to the last verse, he talks about the king rejoicing and about how those who are speaking the truth about God are going to pr continue to praise him. And those who are lying about God, their witness will cease. That ultimately, God will do what is right and God will put all things to right. And to be a follower of God is to say, Lord, give me the grace to do whatever you ask me to do for justice and truth and love and mercy in this world through your Holy Spirit. It is interesting that David prays this psalm and writes this psalm not out of ease and comfort, but out of struggle and pain and difficulty. And I think sometimes we are tempted to say, God, if you're not going to get me out of what I'm going through, if you're not going to deal with the pain and the struggle I'm, that I'm wrestling with, then I don't know what to do. But David says, God, I trust you when life is good and when it's not. I trust you when I'm settled and established in, in your kingdom, and I trust you when I'm on the run 
and I'm confused and I'm questioning. And sometimes I wonder if, if maybe the test of God in our lives isn't most real when we're facing the most difficult things. Who is God to us in the hard moments, in the difficult moments, in the struggling times? As I was reading through this psalm, you know, it struck me that this is not perfection. God's not, David's not saying we have to perfectly follow God every moment. But he's talking about our desire, our passions, our want to. That in the difficult moments, do we want God? Do we want, in the New Testament language, do we want Jesus? And pondering this psalm, there's a, there's a song that kept going through my mind and it's, it's, it's one of the, the old spirituals. That had, it's a very simple kind of, of message, but, but it is, I think, exactly what David is talking about here. That in every moment of life, our prayer would be, give me Jesus. 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 Give me
Father, may that be the passion of our lives. May those be the words that describe who we are as we declare that you are our God. Give us grace that we desperately need through Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.